So let me ask you a question. If you knew when the world was going to end, what would you do? If you knew like, like three months from now or five months from now, whatever it is, you knew the world was going to end, what would you do? I know some of you are really spiritual and you're like, well, I would go to church every day. And some of you say, I would, I would spend all the time with my mom and my wife and, and my kids. And yes, so yes, you're going to do those things. But I want some, you guys know my sense of humor. I want to hear what would you really want to do if you knew the world was going to come to an end. In fact, I read a survey this week that it just made me laugh. You know, people were asked this question. What would you do if you knew the world was going to end? And, and this, this one guy said, if I knew the world was going to end in, in however much time, I would hire two private investigators and I would watch as they tried to chase each other around and follow each other. That was funny. One lady said, one lady said, I'm a teacher. And what I would do is I would create a bubble test where every answer was C. And then I would sit back and laugh and watch the students try and figure it out. Uh, okay. Another guy, another guy, he said, I would, I would make a big batch of vanilla pudding. And I'd put it inside a mayonnaise container, and then I'd go into public, and I'd just eat it. Just get that picture in your mind. That's my kind of sense of humor. Okay. There was a, there was a, there was a teenager, and she said, if I knew the world was going to end in, in 60 days or whatever it was, I would go on an excursion to, to uh, Antarctica. And I'd go, to, I'd go to the South Pole. And I would go to the South Pole and I would do a handstand and have someone take a picture of me. And then I would, then I would Facebook it with hashtag, look, I'm holding up the world. Can you picture that in your mind? And, um, and, and the last one I thought was really funny was, was uh, uh, a lady, probably another teacher. She said, you know, I, if I knew the world was going to end in 30 days, um, I would read the Twilight series and I would cry over the death of literature. And so there we go. There we go. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. And the reason I think that I wanted to have this little fun interaction of what you, do, what you would do if the world was going to end and you knew when, when it was going to happen is because Mark 13 is, is one of these passages of Scripture that makes us begin to think about when is the world going to end? When is the end of the world coming? You know, throughout, throughout all of history, humans, mankind, we've, we've always been curious, when is going to become the end of the world? When's that going to happen? And so Mark 13 is one of those passages that makes people want to spend time thinking about the end of the world, thinking about Armageddon, think, thinking about the second coming of Christ, about the end of our earth. It makes people want to think about when's the zombie apocalypse coming? I've heard something about this. And so people have been making all sorts of these predictions for years. In fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they predicted that Jesus would, would return in 1874. And they also predicted in 1878 and 1881 and 1910 and 1914 and 1918 and 1925 and 1975. And the last time they predicted it was 1984. They finally gave up hope because they couldn't get their predictions correct. Uh, if you guys remember the Y2K bug, you know, December 31st, 1999, we thought the next day when the clock struck midnight and the calendars had to change to the year 2000, we thought with all of our, all of our technological advances that the world was going to come to an end because it wouldn't be able to handle the year 2000. And uh, in fact, for you, and, and if you, I don't know if any of you watched the, the Walking Dead. I'm not really into zombies, but I know there's zombies are a cool thing. Um, there's a Russian dude who I'm not even going to try and say his name. And he believes that the year 2015 is when the world is going to come to an end. 
Because he believes that there is some sort of virus out there that will be used to create some sort of zombie apocalypse virus that is going to be used as a bioweapon so we all turn into zombies. I, don't, I, I, I didn't make this stuff up. I mean, this is, this is really what this dude believes. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with us wanting to know when the world's going to come to an end. There's nothing wrong with that inquisitive mind of saying, when is this going to happen? But honestly, as I look at scripture, I don't think God is really concerned about us having that answer of when that time is going to come. I mean, yes, as we look at Mark 13, yes, Mark 13 speaks towards the end of the end of the world. It speaks towards the second coming of Christ. But nowhere, nowhere do we see Jesus say this is when it is going to happen. That's not the purpose that Jesus wants to do. In fact, as we look at Mark chapter 13, which people can't spend all their time trying to guess times. When I look at chapter 13 of Mark, I see this theme that runs again and again and again and again through this chapter. You see it in verse 9 and verse 23 and verse 33 and verse 37. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling us to be watchful. He's saying, be watchful, be ready. Jesus isn't focused on giving us the answer of when the world's going to come to an end. Instead, he's focused on teaching us how to live while we wait for that time to come, while we wait for his second coming. So I want to be clear in my, I want to be clear with my intention this morning. I don't want to debate when is the world going to come to an end. I don't want to debate that. You may have an idea and that's not my goal. My goal today is to challenge us to challenge every one of us to live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. That Jesus is coming back to, to right everything that's gone wrong in our world. And that should affect how we live, knowing that he is coming again. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. And uh, before we start reading, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. God, we're thankful for the opportunity to be gathered uh, with your church today. God, we know the church is not just a building church isn't a building it's the people so god we thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people today lord i pray that your spirit would rest on us and that you would 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 speak to us god i pray that as we look at these things god i pray that you would put those questions in our minds out that we'd be able to lean in and focus on what it is that you want to teach and communicate to us today god we don't want to just hear a pastor's opinion we want to hear your word god i pray that you'd help me to be out of the way that you would be clear that your message would be clear, that your word would be clear. God, I pray that you would give us the ability to focus and to learn, and that, God, you would continue to change us and draw us to yourself. Jesus, we ask this in your holy and perfect name. Amen. Mark 13 starts out in verse 1. And it says, And Jesus came out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as Jesus sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately and said, Tell us when these things, uh, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? See, for us to understand the context, we have to kind of remember what we've been studying the past few weeks. The past few weeks, we've been studying the last couple of days uh, of the life of Jesus. And, and remember these disciples. You've got to picture these disciples, okay? Jesus came into the temple. Remember what he did? 
He came into the temple and he started throwing over the tables. He started releasing the animals. He started kicking people out of the temple and saying, you've turned the temple that's supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. And he comes in with this righteous anger. And you've got to picture these disciples on the outside kind of watching and observing and thinking, what the heck is going on? And then the last couple of days, Jesus had had these interactions with these religious leaders and he has chastised them and he has confused them and he's put them in their place time and time again. And you've got to picture these disciples sitting on the outside saying, Jesus, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? You're kind of ruffling feathers all over the place. And so I kind of picture the disciples are kind of in this low mode where they're like, dude, we got to lighten the, we got to lighten the mood. Somebody, anybody got a joke? Anybody got a joke to tell us that way Jesus can calm down and, and, and relax a little bit? Nobody's got a joke. So they say, hey, Jesus, you see this marvelous temple. The temple was a beautiful place. It was made of ivory covered in gold. It rose some 150 feet up in Jerusalem. It was just this, this beautiful space. And the stones that they're talking about, the stones, uh, they're believed that the, 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 there were stones at the temple that were 40 feet high, 18 feet wide. These were just monstrosities. This was a beautiful place. And so saying, hey, Jesus, look at this beautiful building. Isn't it wonderful, Jesus? So you can imagine their surprise when Jesus said in verse 2, Jesus responded by saying, not one of these stones are going to be left standing. Meaning, someday this temple is going to be destroyed. Now, to these disciples, man, the, the temple was, was immovable. It was, it was resolute. There's no way that's going to happen. It's too precious. It's too, too wonderful. There's no way that God would allow the temple to be destroyed. And so when they hear Jesus talking about this, they assume, Jesus, you've got to be talking about the end of the world. You've got to be talking about the end of the world because there's no way that this temple would be destroyed in, in, and life would continue on. There's no way that could happen. And so as we begin looking at this passage of scripture, we need to understand that we're talking about two different things. There's going to be two things that we're going to be talking about here. The first one that Jesus is going to talk about when he talked about no stone being left uh, uh, there was Jesus was referring to specifically to the destruction of the temple, which happened in the year 70 AD. But the second thing that the disciples, they're linking the destruction of the temple with the end of the world. And so Jesus is going to speak towards what the second coming looks like, what the end of our world as we know it is going to look like. And so as we go through this passage of scripture, we have to understand that Jesus is going to talk about both of these things. He's going to talk about things relating to the destruction of the temple. And he's also going to talk about his second coming when the world's going to come to an end. So we have to go through this passage. We have to understand the context of what Jesus is talking about regarding each of these issues. So Jesus starts out with his response to the disciples, and he he wants to give them uh, some stern warnings. Warnings um, about the struggles that the disciples and you and I and all of us are going to face as we experience life as a believer, as a a follower of God. And so he's going to give them three specific warnings. The first warning that Jesus gives them is going to be regarding deception and false teaching. This is what Jesus says in verse 5. It says, Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, I'm the Messiah, I'm Jesus, and they will lead many astray. See, what Jesus is saying is, is there's going to be many that come. And their goal is to lead faithful followers of Christ, faithful followers of God, to lead them astray, to lead them down the wrong path. And Jesus is warning them saying, don't believe them. Understand they're going to come. There's going to be people that come and claim, I am 
Christ coming back. I am Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear somebody say I'm Jesus, I kind of think they're fruitcakes. I'm kind of like, no, thank you. I don't want any of that. But there's a, there's a, uh, uh, Jewish, um, uh, Jewish Christian scholar by the name of Charles Feinberg. And as he covers the history of Israel from the time of Jesus to today, there are no less than 67 people who have claimed to be the Messiah coming back. 67 people have come and claimed to be, I am the Messiah. And that doesn't include all the fruitcakes that we find all over the place. And so there, there, there is going to be people, but you know, I'm not really concerned about you and I being misled by somebody saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm, I'm Jesus. I kind of feel like, I kind of feel like that's not something I'm too concerned about for you guys. But I'll tell you what I am concerned about for us. I am concerned about not, not people who claim to be the Messiah himself, but more practically, we need to watch out for, for Christians and Christian cults who, who say they come in the, name of the, in, the, in the name of Jesus, but fail to teach what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. I mean, these are people who claim, hey, I come in the name of Jesus. I, I have Jesus' name, but what they teach is not anything accurate to what the Bible talks about. And so they, they, they teach about a Jesus that is not the Jesus and not the God of the Bible. I'll tell you how this works. When I was at Madison House, we had an older volunteer. We had an older volunteer that was volunteering for us, and I had the opportunity. Uh, it wasn't you, Colleen. You, that wasn't you. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so we had an older volunteer volunteering with us, and, and one of the kids was talking about something we did, and they said, Hey, Kevin, it's gone viral. It's gone viral. And the older volunteer said, Man, that's terrible. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And she goes, well, some infectious disease is going viral all over Yakima. That's a bad thing, right? We're like, oh, I get it. The context, we're saying the same word, but we have completely different meanings. When we say viral, we mean this gone and spread out. And that's a good thing. Everybody's hearing about it. That's a positive thing. And so what happens is, is this is a thing that, 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 that these, these false teachers do is they use the same words as we do, but they have completely different meanings. Many of you know, I grew up in the Mormon church. And I tell you what, in the Mormon church, I learned about Jesus. I learned about salvation. I learned about, about all these same words that we use in Christianity, but have completely different meanings. A completely distorted view of what the Bible says. And so Jesus warns them, there's going to be people who are coming to deceive you. And so this is why, this is why Restoration Church, this is the book that we come to every week. I don't, I don't have much to say. And if all you're doing is listening to my opinion, we're completely missing the boat and I'm going to lead you astray. This is why this is the book that we're going to teach from. Because I do not want to see any of us be led astray. So Jesus warns against deception and false teaching. But secondly, Jesus warns them uh, against being alarmed by the fallen world. Jesus warns them in verse 7 and 8. He says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These must take place. But the kingdom of, uh, but, but it is not the end. For the nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. See, Jesus is saying, don't be alarmed when you hear about wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed when there's, there's earthquakes and the such. He's saying, we've had these things forever. We've had these things forever. In fact, in, in, in world history, we have about 3,500 years of world history that's, that's recorded that we have access to. And out of the 3,500 years, there is 268 years without any wars in our world. That's like 7.5% of all recorded history 
have been without wars. Yet whenever there comes a new war, whenever there becomes a new earthquake, whenever there's something like this happens, we think the end of the world's coming. It's the end of the world. Like, I don't know about you, but maybe you've seen the article that's been circling on Facebook about some massive earthquake that's going to hit the Pacific Northwest. And this earthquake's going to come, and it's going to hit the Pacific Northwest, and the whole, the whole coastline of Washington is going to end up in the Pacific Ocean, if I read that right. I mean, maybe you read this. Now, I, I think it'd be awesome if we could sail from, from, from Yakima to Hawaii. I mean, it'd be great. Stan, I know you've got a boat. We'll come hang out and go sailing. It'd be, it'd be great. I'd love to experience that. You know, you read this and people are like, whoa, it's the end of the world. Things are falling apart. But what Jesus is teaching is just because there's another war, just because there's an earthquake, just because these things, we shouldn't be too alarmed because we've had these things forever. We've had these things ever since the fall of man. You see, when man, when sin entered the world, our world became broken. And all of these things, all of these wars, all of these earthquakes, all of these things, they are a result of the fall of man. And these things, we shouldn't become too surprised because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. So we shouldn't be surprised when things in our world look like they're fallen and they're broken because we are in a broken world. Jesus says, don't be too alarmed that there's natural disasters because you've had these ever since the fall of man anyways. And one more thing that Jesus warns his, his disciples about. He warns them and says, you guys will face persecution. You will face persecution. He says in verse, starting in verse 9, he says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed first uh, to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand of what you are to say, but say whatever is given, to, given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. But brother will del- deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the child will rise against his parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, Jesus is preparing his disciples for a difficult time that's in front of them. Because after the death of Jesus, the disciples are going to face difficulty. It's not going to be peachy and rosy and, and, and life is all good as we, we want it to be. He is preparing them for difficult times. And, and Jesus, he calls them to a very radical commitment. I'm not sure if you missed it. He said in verse 10, there's a radical commitment of what believers are supposed to be about. And that is to preach the gospel. He said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to preach the gospel to all nations. This has to happen. We have to preach the gospel. Jesus is giving them their mission. Under whatever difficult circumstances we may face, whether we're facing, we're facing natural disasters, whether we're facing uh, deception, we have a very specific responsibility, and that's to preach the gospel. Jesus says, this is what I expect from you. Preach the gospel. People must hear about Jesus no matter what. And we say, well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It's all about the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus saying, I'm going to exchange my perfect life for your sinfulness. So God doesn't look at your sinfulness. He sees what I did for you instead. That is what the gospel message is all about. That we can be made right with God. That we can have eternity with him. And we can experience his presence. And the cool thing is, as Jesus said, starting in verse 11, he said, we need to get rid of our excuses of not knowing what to say or not having confidence in it. Because he said in verse 11 that the Holy Spirit, 
will give us the words to speak. I know, oftentimes, you know, you have this opportunity to share the gospel or to talk to somebody about faith, and you're like, you get those butterflies, like, I don't know what to say. But look what he just said. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. So who are you leaning on? But Jesus, he does give us this warning of this radical commitment that we are supposed to make to the gospel. As he says, when we make that kind of a radical commitment to the gospel, he says it can disrupt relationships. It will disrupt our friendships. It can disrupt family relationships. When you make that kind of a commitment to the gospel, to to being on mission, you will face rejection. Most of us, we don't like a rejection. We, we avoid it at all costs. We don't like to have to experience that. But Jesus is saying that rejection is a byproduct of commitment to the gospel. If we are committed to the gospel, this is what we will experience. Some sort of rejection. But I want you to hear these words. I want you to see these words that Jesus is talking about. About this call to this radical commitment. This radical commitment to the gospel. See, Jesus is saying to his disciples that, that through the very worst of, attacks, worst of attacks and through incredible suffering, he wants us to keep preaching the gospel. We always have to come back and say we are about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And I think this is just an appropriate time for us just to stop for a second and ask us, ask yourself, what stops you? What stops you from going about God's business? What stops you from being on mission with God? What stops you from sharing the message of Jesus with those around you? What stops you from being that kind of radical commitment to the gospel? Is it the fear of rejection? Maybe you've got some sin in your life and maybe you feel like a hypocrite. What is it that stops you from this kind of radical commitment to the gospel? Because as you think about that, As you think about what stops you, listen to the words that Jesus said. Look at the warning he said. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, the end that Jesus is talking about here isn't the end of the world. He's talking about the end of a person's life. And he's saying that we are called to be faithful and endure to the end of our life. Now, let's be clear. You don't earn your salvation by enduring to the end. But rather, what Jesus is saying, that you prove that your faith is real when you endure to the end. You don't earn your salvation by enduring to the end. You prove that your faith is real by enduring to the end. The apostle John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, he wrote four books of the New Testament. He wrote in 1 John chapter 2 about this very idea. He said, there was a group of people who went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain, might become plain that they are, that they all are not of us. See, the Christian life, the Christian life is not a single race. The Christian life is not a, it's not a sprint. It's not a hundred meter dash. It's not a 400 meter dash. The Christian life is a marathon. It's, it's an ultra marathon with no end. And I'll be honest, it it pains me. It pains me to think of people, of friends, of acquaintances, even folks in this church who started out in faith, who started out in that relationship with God, and they they were so strong. They seemed so bright and happy and committed. Only they began to fade away under the pressures and under the tensions of the times that we live in. 
It breaks my heart to see people that have started so strong, but have wandered off. This is the idea that Jesus is teaching about. About that radical commitment to the gospel. This is what we're supposed to be about. And so with that as an idea of, hey, disciples, this is what you can expect. This is, this is normal life of being a believer. You're going to be tempted to believe into deception. You're going to be tempted to, to look at all the signs around you and say, look, the end of the world is here. You're going to be tempted to, to give up in perseverance. But Jesus says, endure to the end. Remain faithful. And with that as the backdrop, Jesus begins to lean in to these two topics that they're talking about. The destruction of the temple and the second coming of Christ. He starts out in verse 14, and he turns our attention back to the magnificent temple. He's in verse 14. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possibly elect. He says, be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Jesus has taken this time to predict the destruction of the temple, and he predicts it perfectly. We know that AD 70, history shows the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. In, 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 in 67 AD, there was, a, there was an uprising that started. There were some religious zealots in, in Jerusalem who said, we're tired of Roman occupation and we're going we're gonna to uprise and we're going to fight against the Romans. And so they, they ended up pushing back against the Romans. And in response to that, there was a Roman leader by the name of Titus who dealt with, with this uprising by gathering an army and attacking the entire city of Jerusalem, completely leveling the city and the temple. Every sign that Jesus just predicted happened and came forth. I mean, Jesus predicted that there would be Jewish folks who heard about this attack coming beforehand and and they would flee the city into the mountains. And historically, we know this to be true. That when those religious zealots, when they took over the temple, they, they, they ended up taking over the temple and they allowed all, all sorts of ungodly things to happen in the temple. All sorts of horrible things happened in the temple. There was murder, all sorts of things. That when those faithful Jews saw this happening, they said, man, we're in trouble. There's going to be, uh, there's going to be some, some, some judgment coming. And so they fled into the mountains to get out uh, of the city before this ever happened. Just like Jesus said was going to happen. Jesus predicted that there would be famines. Jesus predicted there would be famines. And when Titus came to Jerusalem, the way that Titus wanted to destroy the city was under siege. And so, and so there's a historian by the name of Josephus, and he describes the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And he said that, that as they tried to siege the city and prevent any food from coming in and overwhelm the systems within the city, that 1.1 million Jews died at this point. Many of them came from or, or died from, from, from slow starvation. Only 97,000 Jews survived this. In fact, Jesus predicted woe to those who were nursing. 
And again, if we turn to the writings of Josephus, man, it's almost overwhelming and, and too difficult to read. Because you're going to read about parents who kill their children so they could eat them. You're going to read about kids who killed their parents so they could eat their parents. Jesus predicted that there would be not one stone in the temple that would be left upon another. And we know this to be true. The temple was completely leveled. Everything that Jesus said came true. So as Jesus, as he's talking here about the destruction of the temple, mixed in with that, he also predicts his second coming. He says, hey guys, yes, this is happening, the destruction of the temple. But guess what? I'm also, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. He says in verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its li- not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great glory, power and glory. And then he will send out angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth uh, to the ends of heaven. In the middle of his accurate prediction of the destruction of the temple, Jesus says, yeah, in the middle of that, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm coming back. I mean, we don't want to spend all the time this morning covering all of those details that we just read. All of those came from the Old Testament. Everything that Jesus talked about the second coming had come from an Old Testament Testament manuscript. But we can identify a few things. Jesus said that the second coming will feature unnatural disasters. The language identifies maybe a, a heavenly earthquake of some sort. You've got, you've got stars, that stars after stars will fall down. And the universe begins to move towards disorganization. disorganization. I mean, Earth's own star, the sun, will begin to dim. And the moon's light uh, will, 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 will be too little to see. Too little reflection of the moon for us to be able to see it. And in the middle of this, this, this cosmological confusion, Jesus is going to come back. Shining in clouds of glory, coming on the clouds. He'll come back with his angels, and his angels, their job is to be joyous reapers, to harvest Christians together from every nook and every cranny of the world. He'll gather all the believers together to be with him. This should be our dream. This should be what we look forward to. Jesus coming back, experiencing his perfect presence, experiencing his perfect peace, experiencing his perfect goodness, removing every speck of sin, every speck of hurt, every speck of pain. When he comes back, all these things will be no more. This should be what we dream about. Him coming back to make things right in this world. And so Jesus teaches these two ideas about the destruction of the temple and all that's going to happen and the hope that we should find from him coming again. The question is, well, when are these things going to happen? When are these things going to happen? And Jesus gives us one answer in verse 30. Verse 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Some people say, well, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's saying the destruction of the temple will take place before this generation is done. The disciples, their generation, he's saying you can expect to see the destruction of the temple. And we know this to be true. We know that happened in year 70 AD. And that would have been the disciples' generation. They would have seen this happen. He got, Jesus predicted this correctly. He got this right because he's perfect. The temple was destroyed in the lifetime of the disciples question for us is, what about the second coming? When is that happening? When do we get experience of that? 
Here's what Jesus says in this about the second coming. He says in verse 32, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. See, nobody knows when it's going to happen. Not even the angels in heaven know when Christ is coming back. And it, and it really pains me to, to hear these prophets who say, I know when Jesus is coming back and I'll give you a date. In fact, there's a guy by the name of Harold Camping. Harold Camping was a, was a Bible teacher who had a large following. I think actually Harold Camping at one point went to Biola. I think he got kicked out of Biola. But I think he went to Biola years and years ago. Small world, isn't it? And so Harold Camping, he famously predicted that he could tell us when Jesus was going to return. So he wrote a book in 1992 and he said, Jesus is going to return either in 1994 or 1998 or 2011. But not only did he predict the year, he also predicted the month. He said it's going to be in May. And he even predicted the day. It's going to be May 21st of 2011. And so Camping, what he did is he had millions of followers that followed him because of his prediction. And he told all of his followers, here's what you need to do. You know Jesus is going to come back on May 21st, 2011. You need to sell all of your possessions and donate all those proceeds to our ministry so we can make sure everybody knows that Jesus is coming back. Camping made millions of dollars off of his prediction. So May 22nd, 2011, guess what the reporters did? They camped outside of Camping's house. There were no angels gathering the elect. There was no Jesus. There was Harold camping with all of his windows drawn. Sitting with his well-manicured house. I mean, he told everybody else, sell your possessions. But he had this nice house, well-manicured yard. Can you kind of get the idea of what's going on here? Finally, he comes out of his house and he says, you know, I was wrong by a few months. It's actually going to be October 21st. And guess what happened on October 22nd? Once again. Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. Don't listen to people who are going to say, this is when it's going to happen. Because that's not Jesus' concern. Look what his concern is. Jesus, he tells us his concern right here. Verse 33, he says, be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey, and when when he leaves and comes home and puts his servants in charge... Or when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, I say to all, stay awake. Back when I was a teenager, there was an experience where my mom went out of town for something rather. And, uh, you know, okay. I I was, by that time, all my siblings were out of the house, so I was kind of an only child. And so I'm like, all right, mom, when are you coming home? She's like, I'm coming home Sunday at five o'clock. So you know what you do, right? I didn't throw a party. Come on, I wasn't that kind of a kid. But man, you know, you just throw your laundry wherever you want. You know, you you eat your lunch and you you leave your your, your stuff all over the place. And you just, I mean, come on, that's, that's what you guys do, you know? And, 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 and I knew that mom was coming home at five o'clock. So guess what happened about four o'clock on, on Sunday afternoon? I started preparing. I better clean up. I better get the dishes done. And I, you run around like crazy for an hour. So that way all weekend you don't have to do anything wrong. Then one time my mom was gone and she came home and she said, I'm coming home at five o'clock. And guess what? She came home at like 3.30. Yeah, that sucked. That was, that was horrible. That was, that, was, that was not a good day. This is kind of the idea that Jesus is talking about. 
In fact, he's trying to encourage us in two things. The first one is that we need to be ready. We need to be ready. We don't have the luxury of knowing when Jesus is coming back. We don't have the luxury of knowing when the world's going to come to an end. But he's given us our tasks. He's given us our ministry. He's given us our mission, our work to do, to know Christ and to make Christ known, to preach the gospel of all nations. And so Jesus is saying, keep watch, be ready. Don't wait for tomorrow. Do it today because we don't know when he's coming back. He might surprise us and come back tomorrow. What does that mean for you and I? How do we be ready for him to come back? It means no more waiting. No more delaying. I mean, how many times do we tell ourselves, I'll do it tomorrow? How many times do we tell ourselves, you know, I'll start reading my Bible tomorrow. I'll start praying more tomorrow. Today I'm just going to go and I'm listening to the baseball game. I'm going to go golf. I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. And tomorrow I will do that for you, God. Maybe you say, well, well, I don't want to, I don't want to have that conversation with my friend right now because we'll get into an argument about faith and, and, and I, and I don't want to face that kind of rejection. So I'll talk to them about faith some other time, you know, maybe, maybe next week or, or next month or, or, or next year and you put it off, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll commit and I'll serve in the church and I'll serve in ministry, you know, maybe when I'm a little bit older. Maybe when, when the kids are gone, maybe when I have, have a little bit more wisdom, maybe when I'm retired, then I will finally start serving God. Do you see what we do? And this is what Jesus is saying. Don't wait. Be ready now. You don't know when Christ is going to come back. Are you ready? Are you ready for him to come back? Because we all know that we have a responsibility. We have a mission he's given us to know Christ and to make Christ known, to grow in our faith. Are you ready today? I think it's the first encouragement. We need to be ready. We need to believe that he is coming. We need to be actively pursuing that today. Whether he comes in our lifetime or not, it doesn't matter. Jesus is clear. He wants our lives to be lived in the reflection of him coming back. But there's a second thing that we learn from this passage, second way to apply it is that knowing that Jesus is coming back, it should also give us hope. It should also give us hope. Because remember all those things that Jesus said we will experience in our life. We're going to be exposed to false teachings. We're going to have the temptation to follow deception. We're going to experience all sorts of natural disasters. We're going to have persecution because of our faith. And see, the promise of Jesus coming back, it gives us hope to those disciples. All those disciples, they can, they can grab onto and cling on to the hope of Jesus coming back. And that gives them hope to endure all sorts of things. To endure all sorts of things that we will experience in our life. I mean, you think about these, these disciples. Every one of these disciples that Jesus is talking about in Mark 13. Every one of them suffered immensely in the name of Jesus. James, James ended up getting beheaded because of his faith. Andrew, Andrew was crucified on a cross because of his faith in Jesus. Peter, Peter was crucified upside down because of his faith in Jesus. James, John, John survived being boiled alive. And then was was exiled to the island of Patmos for the rest of his life. You know what made that possible? Hope. The hope of Jesus. 
the hope that one day Jesus is going to come back. See, if we're going to endure the hardships of life, if we're going to endure the suffering, if we're going to endure the trials and the pain and the loneliness and the difficulty that we experience in this life, the only way we endure to the end is having the hope of him coming back, of making all things right. The promise of eternity with Jesus gives us hope. And if you're here today and you're experiencing that kind of hardship, if you're here today and you're experiencing uh, difficulty and, and suffering, Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Endure to the end because he's coming back for you. He's coming back to make all things right. He will make all things right. He will take the things that have gone wrong and he will fix them. And he will make all things right. And that is why we live in light of the hope of his return. And that's why you anticipate his return. Because that gives us hope to endure to for another day. Because he is coming back to make all things right, to, 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 to correct everything that's gone wrong. Restoration Church, we've always been a church that has loved and celebrated and lived on the reality of the fact that Jesus came for us once. But let's also be a church that loves, that lives, that walks, that serves and worships and the reality of him coming again. Would you pray with me? God, just thank you for this opportunity to be with your people today, to be able to open up your word, that your word would speak to us. God, I pray that as we, we, we talk through these things like the end times, God, I pray that you would help us to understand. God, your desire is that we would live in, in expectation of that. We would be prepared for that. It wouldn't catch us off guard. God, I pray that you would, would allow your spirit to rest on us. And as we, we think towards that, God, I pray that you would help us to live as if we don't know when that time's coming. That, God, for those in here today who have sin in their lives, and they keep saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, another time I'll deal with this. God, I pray that today would be the day. They said, Jesus, I don't know when you're coming back, but today I'm going to get this out of my life, so I'm ready. God, for those who have been dragging their feet, for those who have saying, I know I'm supposed to be involved in church. I know I'm supposed to be involved in ministry. I know I'm supposed to serve you. I know I'm supposed to, 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 to be about the gospel. But, you know, God, I've been dragging my feet. I pray that today would be the day that they say no more. Today I'm all in. Today I'm all in because I don't know when you're coming back, but I want to be ready for it. God, I pray for every one of us that we would have that kind of of. of, of conviction of knowing that you're coming back and it would affect how we live today. And God, for those that are hurting and struggling today, God, I pray that you would be their hope. Knowing that you're coming back, that there would be a hope that would help us to endure to the end, to fight on another day, to resist that temptation one more time. That God, you would be the hope that we have. God, that's our desire. That's my desire for every one of us. That you would be our hope. We're going to have the opportunity to respond to your word today through worship. God, my goal is that these next two songs, that each of us would be able to spend some time between us and the Lord, saying, God, what is it I need to do today? What is it I need to do today to make sure I am living in light of your return? There's a time of confession that we need to do. God, I pray that we would confess that before you. 
There's a time of just celebration, of celebrating the fact that you're coming again for us to make things right. God, I pray that we would just be able to join the celebration and join the worship because you are worthy of it. But God, I pray every one of us would take this time to deal with you personally, with where we are. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in your holy and perfect name. Amen.